You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Drug companies spend as much as $21 billion per year promoting their products. Even if you do not see drug reps, don't have a sample closet, and you never go to a promotional dinner program, you are likely still being influenced. How can this be? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, Idaho, your host, and with me today is the Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Buffalo, Dr. Stephen Dubofsky. Dr. Dubofsky recently authored the book, Psychotropic Drug Prescriber Survival Guide, Ethical Mental Health Treatment in the Age of Big Pharma. Welcome to ReachMD, Steve. Thanks, Leslie. I'm glad to be here. So, Steve, most of us have never even taken a marketing class. How can we begin to understand the myriad of ways that pharma influences us? Well, all you have to do is have a TV set or read a newspaper, and you can appreciate the power of marketing because everything, ideas, products, concepts, political parties, candidates, and so forth, all of these are marketed to us every day. Those of us who feel we're immune to marketing have not been paying close attention. The thing is, uh, a successful business knows the principles of marketing, and whereas we haven't taken marketing courses, they have. And there are very well-established principles for how you sell your product. First thing to be aware of is when someone is trying to sell you something, they want to size you up. They want to look at how you think and how you make decisions. If you're the kind of person, for example, who pays attention only to data, they'll show you data. And this happens to me. You know, if I go in to buy a car and I say, well, you know, what's the acceleration? What's the gas mileage? How many cylinders? And so on. I'll get a nice brochure that tells me uh, all these kinds of data. If someone who makes emotional decisions, I'll get a more emotional presentation, like, look at this flashy car, it's so cool, comes in a convertible, bright colors, etc. And then many of us base our decisions on both emotion and data, and so we'll get a combination of the two. And we see these kinds of presentations regularly from the drug companies. We'll get a mass of data. And as I said earlier, the data we're looking at may or may not have any real meaning in terms of the usefulness of the product to us. But the way in which it's presented is designed to make us feel that this is the product for us and this will meet our needs whether or not it uh, it will. One of the most powerful advertising techniques that industry uses is the celebrity endorsement, and we see this all the time in psychiatry, you might say, well, you know, we don't really see that many people get up and endorse a particular drug. We had all those endorsements of Viagra years ago, celebrity endorsements, but those are rare in psychiatry. However, to us, the celebrities are the big names in psychiatry that we're all familiar with because we've read their books and articles and we've seen them on symposia and national and local meetings. And when someone in that position says, I like this treatment, we are much more likely to use it ourselves. I can't tell you how many times I'll have someone in practice in town come up to me and say, well, I heard that you like to use treatment X for this. And I say, well, where'd you hear that? 
well, the drug rep told me. I said, well, where did the drug rep hear that? Well, you told him. Well, not that I recall. But that kind of, of celebrity power has a big impact on us because we tend to trust people who we feel are at the cutting edge. Another thing that is very effective marketing a product is the gift. And this is, everyone knows, is now a big issue in all of medicine and particularly in psychiatry because it turns out there's quite a bit of research showing that even small gifts, even a tiny little gift, like a pen, for example, can create a sense of obligation and wanting to return the favor to the person who gives you the gift. And you see this in all areas of life. If you ever go into an auto repair shop, you'll see calendars from the supplier of the the various parts that they use. You'll see the reps from that particular industry uh, in there doing favors for the repair team because doing a favor for someone, getting you an article, making your life a little bit easier, bringing you lunch, all of these things make you feel like someone has done something for you. And in general, when we feel that someone has helped us out, most of us want to return the favor. We may not consciously say, oh, you gave me a pen, I'm going to prescribe your medication. But the research shows pretty consistently that when drug companies do us favors of any kind, we do develop two things. First, a sense of obligation. And secondly, we like the person. Therefore, we like the company. Therefore, we like their product. And when we're weighing two products that seem more or less equal, we'll pick the one that we have a positive emotional response to. I remember years ago, I used to do talks sponsored. These were in the days when you could simply give a lecture on anything. The drug company would sponsor it. You didn't have to follow their guidelines. And I would give a talk. They would have symposia on depression and rheumatology for rheumatologists and general internists. And I'd give a talk on how to recognize depression in primary care practice. And I had a rheumatologist friend, and he used to give a talk on various topics in rheumatology. And it was sponsored by a company that made an antidepressant called amoxapine. Amoxapine is, a for those people who have not used it, it's an older medication, way off patent now, and the, that, the company that made it is no longer in existence. It got amalgamated uh, with some other company. But this particular antidepressant had neuroleptic properties. It was very tricky to use, and it really was not something that should have been used in primary care practice. And when the primary care doctors asked me about amoxapine, I would say, I don't think you should use it. It's a specialty drug, and uh, it's sometimes useful under very limited circumstances, but it's not something you folks ought to be thinking about prescribing in a primary care practice. And despite this, they kept inviting me back to give talks. And I, I went up to the person who organized this, and I, I said, I don't understand why you, why you keep inviting me back, because I keep bad-mouthing mm-hmm. your product. And they said, for the 30 days after one of those talks, prescriptions for all of their products went up, all their rheumatology products, their antibiotics, their vitamins, everything, because the audience felt good about me And therefore, they felt good about the sponsor of the talk, and therefore, they felt good about all their products. And it had a kind of halo effect. So all of these things are examples of marketing. It's essentially create a good feeling, create a mindset that inclines you to use the product. 
And anyone who feels uh, they're immune to this is uh, really has not doesn't know the basic principles of marketing, which is you can influence behavior through uh, subtle forms of reward. Now, this is not to say, first of all, it's impossible to escape marketing unless you're never going to talk to anybody because everybody markets everything. As I said earlier, we market our ideas to each other. We market our likes and our dislikes and so forth. When you recognize the marketing, you can be a little more alert to what impact it's likely to have on you, and then you can be a little more objective in your decision-making. But simply to say, no, this won't influence me is uh, simply not true. When you look at studies of physicians, medical students, residents, and they've gotten something from a, a drug company, usually a lunch of some sort or a dinner or a little gift or something like that, and you ask them, do you think this influences prescribing practices? They say, absolutely. You know, everybody else is influenced by this. And if you say, do you think you're influenced by it? They say, no, not me. I'm too smart for this. Everybody else is. And you look at their prescribing practices, and that's not the case. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is professor and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Buffalo, Dr. Stephen Dubovsky. We are discussing how marketing may influence our prescribing patterns. So, Steve, the, the whole pen thing is interesting to me. I just assumed that the main reason for the pen is just that we see the drug name on it every time we pick up the pen. And, you know, I don't even think of it as a gift. So that that's really interesting. And it sounds like most physicians don't feel that the pen influences them at all. Right. And most of us feel we're much too smart and much too above these kinds of petty things to be influenced by a pen. Now, if you're going to give me a a Porsche, maybe that would influence me, but a pen is not going to have any effect on me. But it turns out that all of these gifts do tend to influence behavior, which is why they do it. By and large, a company will not be successful if it can't sell its product. And they put an enormous amount of work into figuring out how to do that. All we have to do is put a little effort ourselves into figuring out how to recognize it. It's not like they shouldn't do it. You wouldn't say, that, you know, in this world, an industry shouldn't market its product. That's, uh, you know, if you want to do that, go live in uh, North Korea. But even they're marketing their product, though. You know, everybody's marketing something. It's just a question of how you react to the marketing, and if you don't recognize it, you're going to react on a more subliminal level. Now, what about back to the celebrity endorsement and, and national thought leaders? Doesn't the disclosure statements before every talk or journal article, doesn't that sort of negate this? Well, first of all, I wonder how many people actually look at those. And when you look at them, I mean, do you measure the size of the disclosure? If it's two lines, is that somebody who's going to be less influenced and someone who's got two pages of things that they've done? Also, a lot of us, tend to think that, well, gee, if, you know, if they've done research with all these drug companies, they must be really good. And in fact, there's some truth to that because the drug companies will want people doing research for them who are well thought of and who are competent. It's not an invalid assumption to say if you have industry ties, you know, that you may have, have a certain level of respect. This, what we don't know, though, is what is the impact of those relationships on what that person says. So we can't simply look at the list of affiliations and then say, okay, now that I've seen that, 
I can simply listen to this talk. You'd have to say, well, what are the number of times that this person mentions the product that is produced by one of their sponsors? And this isn't to say that the expert with a lot of drug company affiliations is simply acting as a salesman or salesperson for the drug company. It's just that when you work with someone, you develop a certain attachment to them and to their ideas. You're familiar with their research, you're familiar with their product, and you tend to think of it first. So just looking at the disclosures doesn't really tell us what's the content of what this person is saying. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Stephen Dubofsky. We have been discussing how pharmaceutical marketing may influence our prescribing habits. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 